Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Good evening. This really is A Different Perspective, and I really am Kevin Randall. Uh, A number of weeks ago, I promised you guys we'd be talking to Ben Moss about the Socorro UFO sighting, and we had some problems with getting all of that hooked up and were unable to get Ben on the program. And uh, the plan had always been to talk to his partner, Tony Angiola, uh, today. And uh, we've now got both of them together, I guess is where I'm going with this whole whole thing, to talk about the Socorro UFO crash, uh, not crash, landing, the... uh, Socorro Landing with Lonnie Zamora, get a little bit more information about that, maybe learn something about the investigations that they've continued over the last year. And one thing I did want to say is when they were on the program originally, uh, more than a year ago, they'd made a couple of statements that bothered me. One of them was there were three witnesses who had called the police station about the um, sighting, that they had had sightings of their own. And I had asked at the time if they had seen the police logs or something like that, and I never really got an answer on that. Excuse me. Uh, After the program is I went back to the Project Blue Book files, and I was looking through that, and I came to a report written by Captain Richard Holder on the night of the landing. And in the body of that report, it mentioned three people who'd called the police station. So what they had told me was confirmed at that point. 
which I thought was a good thing. There were some other things like that. And what it did was inspire me to look deeper into the uh, case. And all of that culminated or will culminate in the publication of my book, Encounter in the Desert, which if uh, it isn't out now available on Amazon, it will be in the next week or so. And it's about the Socorro UFO sighting and what my investigation has shown in the last year, mentioning what uh, Ben and Tony had done as well. So there's a, a kind of a connection, connection there. I know that uh, Ben and Tony have taken a look at my book, and we maybe discussed uh, things that we disagree on in, in, in the book, what I say and what they, they have found themselves, and see where that takes us. A little bit of background here. You know, as we said before, Ben has been interested in UFOs most of his life. He's been a MUFON investigator since the 90s and is currently the chief field investigator for Virginia. He is a speaker and appears on season two of the History Channel Hangar One show, as well as NASA's Unexplained Files and various radio talk shows, such as this one. Got to get that in there. As a MUFON investigator, Ben has also studied such diverse disciplines as history, archaeology, physics, astronomy, and religion, among other sciences, to better understand and his investigation of UFOs. Tony is the assistant state director for Virginia and is a member of the Rapid Deployment Star Team. Tony has a background in information technology and has been studying UFOs since the 1990s. He is he became an investigator in 1999 and lives and he lives in Northern Virginia or has lived in Northern Virginia for over 20 years. As technology progresses, Tony hopes to be able to bring new evidence to light with the goal of one day explaining some of the scientific, explaining more scientifically the various forms of propulsion that appear in the photographs and are found in different types of evidence left behind by strange phenomena. So they've got scientific backgrounds. They've been looking into UFOs for nearly 20 years apiece as um, investigators, been members of MUFONs for a great long time. So they have a, a good background, and I know they began an investigation into the Socorro landing a couple of years ago. So they have been to Socorro. They've talked to a lot of the people that were there uh, in 1964 when the landing took place, talked to a lot of other people, including um, the only person who was originally on scene, um, uh, Ray Stanford. So we've got a lot to talk about here. Um, I have very little time left. I've managed to use up most of it. Uh, ben, Tony, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks. Thanks. <clears throat> That's it? Just thanks? Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for, you know, uh, we enjoyed the book. I appreciate you giving us kudos for the part of the investigation that we did. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's exciting times. Yeah, I thought it was um it was really nice to be on your show last time because we've been watching your career for many years and reading your books, and so it was it was very exciting to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I was going to say also the book is kind of inspired by you your investigation into into the Socorro case and some of the things that uh, you'd said during the program that I wanted to verify, which I was able to do. I think the only really bone of contention now is the symbol that Lonnie Zamora saw and when he drew it and that sort of thing. You can take a look at a lot of this stuff at. Um, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which reminds me, before when we come back, I've got something else to talk about from last week's program, and then we'll get deeply into this. So uh, stick around. We'll have some exciting things going on. Oh, that was the best one.
inclusive. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Is it science or is it magic? Once a magical thing has been scientifically proven, is it no longer magic? Or is magic simply the science of tomorrow? Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, on The Science of Magic, a syndicated radio program dedicated to combining the science and magic of today's dynamic and controversial topics to co-create new solutions. By triangulating information from today's leading experts from the scientific and magical fields, we uncover expansive and evolutionary truths you won't find anywhere else. Join us daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, as I interview the shared thoughts with the amazing guests from both science and magic. The resulting knowledge is unprecedented. As a gift to you, the listener, past episodes can be accessed on our website free of charge at thescienceofmagic.net.
Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. And believe it or not, we are back. I am joined by Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. We're going to talk about Socorro in just a minute. But before we went to break, I was reminded of something that I did want to talk about briefly. Last week, we um, talked about a a series of photographs that had been taken uh, of a UFO. And we wanted the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pound i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer with no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees banking with capital one is the easiest decision in the history of decisions even easier than choosing charles barkley in a pickup game we'll take barkley ha first pick sorry kids yep even easier than that With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. What the possibility was with Rob Zwiatek. Within 24 hours of me posting the photographs at my blog, which is a way of me being able to say, you can take a look at the photographs at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Within 24 hours, we'd identified the source. It turns out it was a um, solar station, a reflector station on the border of Arizona and California. And there were pictures on the website of the organization that owns the thing that matched the formation of the UFO seen in the photograph. So I thought that was kind of interesting that here was a case that had been investigated. It had been difficult to, um, or they had been unable to identify it. And we managed to post the pictures and within 24 hours, we'd identified the source and solved that riddle. And I thought that was kind of exciting for the program. But once again, you can take a look at that and the stories about that at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Now back to Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, who have investigated the Socorro UFO landing. Uh, Last time when we talked, which was over a year ago on the program, they had they were continuing their investigation and they had talked about some things that had, they had found and might have been interesting so ben I'll, we'll start with you uh, what have you learned in the last year that you find exciting about the socorro landing well kind of piggybacking on what you know the what you have in your book about the multiple sightings of the a-shaped craft um we didn't mention this before, but Ray Stanford, when he was in uh, Socorro in 64, uh, in this time frame, he saw an egg-shaped craft pass him on the highway. And I believe he had a couple of other friends with him, too. He got a photograph of it, too. Yes. 
So um, it's funny because with all the digging we've done and the digging you've done, the more you look into the case, the more you pretty much have the framework for the event happening just as Lonnie described it. It just reinforces the case more and more as we find there are more witnesses to it. So um, the goal is to find, I know there was supposedly a landing near the uh, near the reservoir in Socorro. Um, try to dig up on that. It, it, we're really probably going to go back next summer and, and try to do a more thorough investigation there. Well, we should say one thing about the photograph. It was taken some six months after the initial landing. So it wasn't, it wasn't taken right in the same specific time frame, like in a, a couple of days, but it was taken six months later, and it was a picture of the dynamite shack, as I understand it, and the objects were seen in the background, and Ray hadn't even noticed that until many, many years later. Well, that photograph was 124 days after the event. I knew you guys would correct me specifically on that. <laughs> yeah, what, what happened was, um, I think Ray had the photograph, somebody asked him uh, if he could read the writing on the dynamite shack, so in 2005, he blew it up, and that's when he uncovered, um, you know, some objects in the sky uh, in the background. And, and I know he's still working on it, but he's cleaned it up a lot. And, you know, from our perspective, and, uh, of course, we get a lot of grief about, you know, this because it's not been shown yet. But it clearly shows an egg-shaped craft in the sky with a couple of landing gear uh, obviously visible, just as Lonnie described it. And... Once, you know, that thing gets out, it'll put a lot of um, naysayers to, to rest. But it's not its not something you could misidentify as a smudge or an artifact on on the camera or on the uh, photograph. Well, I think the most fascinating thing about that photograph that I like the most is the fact that there's evidence of propulsion. You see the ionized air around the object. Yeah, there's a swirl around the object. Um, it's hard to tell what angle you're looking since it's an elliptical object. But then there's another one to the left of it that doesn't have any landing gear. And then there's a larger object near the mountains in the background. So there's actually four objects in this photograph. We just, you know, until it's released, we, we're kind of tired of talking about it because nobody believes us. So <laughs> it's one of those things that is circumstantial evidence until we can show it to everybody. Well, I guess the question that springs to my mind, and it kind of harkens back to the Billy Meyer stuff. I mean, he's got lots and lots of photographs, but he never produces the negatives. Oh, well, Ray doesn't have lots and lots of photographs. He just <laughs> no, has, but I'm he saying, but he, but, he has, <laughs> but, he's, but he's looking for the negative, is my point. Right. Yeah, it's misplaced. Um, yeah, he's not trying to get notoriety, money, or anything. He wants us to do it right the right way. Yeah. So. If you've been to Ray's house, you know, there's stuff everywhere. So it, I can understand not being able to find it because there's probably 50 years of, of living, accumulating, you know, things through paleontology and everything else that, there's a lot of paperwork. He took cop copious notes, and that's why um, some of the notes he shared with us at the time of Socorro are very interesting. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to you know, put that in print at some point. But, um, you know, one of the things about your book that got me going was all these cases associated with that time frame of an egg-shaped craft, even though one of them, the guy says it's 100 yards in diameter, you know, it could be a perspective thing. But I know that there was an Air Force pilot that also said he spotted a white, egg-shaped craft in the sky with a symbol on it, um, I just haven't been able to find evidence of that being documented anywhere. Well, that, that's the kind of the whole problem with the Socorro case that I found, and, and you guys kind of, as I said, uh, spurred me on to this, was the suggestion that there were multiple witnesses. I'd always thought the Socorro case was very interesting, but the problem was it was single witness. You were, you were locked into Lonnie Zamora and his credibility, which I didn't have a problem with his credibility. I thought he was a very credible source, but 
it was single witness. When we talked, you suggested other witnesses. I found evidence that they existed. But the other thing that was interesting was it, within 24 hours or so, there were a number of other sightings in New Mexico of a similar craft under similar circumstances. I thought that was very interesting uh, as well. So I, in the book, I tried to bring all of that forward and talked about the people who had <laughs> seen things around um, Socorro and uh, on the night of uh, April 24th, 1964, when Lonnie had made his, his sighting. And we were able to attach names to some of these sightings as well. And I thought that was very important because it's no longer, well, we have the three witnesses who called the police department. And the police department never wrote anything down and nobody ever looked for those people um, in, in April of 1964, which is, to me, one of the first things I would have done. Well, the three people called in. Let's see if we can find that. We know the path the object took over Socorro, we might be able to locate those people or others who had seen it in the air. I thought that was important, but nobody at the time, whether it was, was Ray or Jalen Hynek, the Air Force investigator or the Air Force consultant, David Moody, who was the Air Force investigator, um, or anybody else involved in this really looked for those people, but we have documentation they existed. So that is something. And then we look at the other sightings as well, mm -hmm. and it kind of adds a, a level of credibility to the to the case. Yeah, so, I, thought always, I thought about that a lot too, uh, Kevin. And I feel like back in the, during that time, they weren't used to this kind of thing. So their, their protocols, you know, weren't what they are today. And it could just be the fact that they're, they're kind of surprised, <clears throat> taken by surprise by all the activity. They're just not, it's not part of their MO on a daily basis to, to answer the phone a certain way, collect information a certain way, or... Yeah, how do you amalgamate all of that information? <clears throat> they probably, the guy that took the three calls wasn't talking to the officer that was in the field, and it's like, you don't know all these other events are ha have happened, and so you're not gathering the information like today, you would just Google it. Well, I can't I, imagine much life without what a I'm smartphone. <laughs> What I'm saying, what I'm saying is I, I can understand the police officer not taking down the information of cause of some bizarre object in the sky before Lonnie Zamora is involved in this thing. I get that. What I'm saying is Jim and Coral Lorenzen from APRA were there within, what, 48 hours? They mm -hmm. were there on Sunday afternoon talking to Lonnie Zamora, talking to uh, Harder, or um, Holder, talking to um, the other police officers who were involved. They should have been doing that sort of thing. Ray Stanford was a member of NICAP. He should have thought about it. I can understand Moody not doing it, Moody being the Air Force guy, because, you know, these things aren't real. So why waste my time chasing down these supposed witnesses? I can understand Moody not doing it. And, and Hynek was the Air Force consultant as opposed to a real field investigator. Uh, the other thing that I noticed, which, which I bring out in the book, is uh, Ray and, and Hynek are on the um, landing site and Heineck has nothing to gather samples in and he borrows right. some stuff from, from Ray. <laughs> yeah, but, Holder, <laughs> but Holder had already gathered samples on the night of the event and right. all, and the, my question had been what happened to those si samples? They all went to um, the Air Force. And don't uh, forget Ted, Ted Jordan's film too that yeah. was allegedly irradiated. Yeah, well Heineck, we have the, the interview um, that we showed a clip of in, in at the MUFON Symposium of Heineck sitting with Ray, confirming that the film was fogged by radiation. So he knew that that had actually happened, and that's why they weren't getting the film back. But, but my point, my point simply is this. I, I can understand Moody not really doing a good job because 
he didn't really care. I mean, you get an impression from, from Project Blue Book people, these things aren't real, and we're just going through the motions till we can get rid of this damn project. That's like uh, quantum yeah. But, but, but the, you know, I was bothered by the fact that Holder and his people had gathered samples and what happened to them. And by going through the files, I discovered that Holder had given all of that material to Heineck. And we get really no analysis of, of that material anywhere that I can find. And it may be that the analysis was basically, well, there's nothing extraordinary in the samples. And there's nothing that leads us to any kind of conclusion. And there's kind of a hint about that in the Blue Book file. So, you know, that was one of the things that I saw that kind of um, interested me. But but the Lorenzans should have been doing the follow-up stuff because they were, they were there. They know what they were doing. They had done this thing with... Um, um, we had uh, David Boer on the program not too long ago, and he was talking about the uh, Jerry Irwin case from 1959. So we see the Lorenzans doing the backup investigations and getting the backup information, and it seemed that nobody did that sort of um, <clears throat> what I would consider an elementary investigation back in 1964 when they have this wonderful case sitting in front of them, and they kind of booted it. Well, you know, I mean, as far as, you know, Ray, Ray goes, uh, when he collected the, the sample of rocks and whatnot, I'm sure he was really excited to get that to Goddard because he was working with Dick Hall. And it was actually Dick Hall's recommendation, uh, you know, to work with Goddard uh, to get those metal samples that came back as that unique uh, meld of zinc iron alloy that was assembled in a, in, a, in a unique way. And then, you know, we talked about what happened to the, um, the what was his name, Frankel, Dr. Frankel, and what happened to him for just being involved with it. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're doing a thing on propulsion here in a couple of weeks, but, um, you know, there's not going to be anything new in physics. It's just how you understand the physics of things work. So the interesting thing about that was you had two common metals, but they were just combined in a way that wasn't earthly. So uh, that suggests, you know, an off-world technology. And we haven't quite said it was aliens, you know. We we because it could be ultra ultraverse or you know. But you know, our conclusion is this was not a human. Well, one uh, of the one, one of the problems. The we're going family style deal because I want a bite of your Big Mac and I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your fillet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. The future will be amazing, and that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. I'm having right now, and I understand this because I just wrote a book about it, so I'm completely immersed <laughs> in this thing. But I, I know the audience isn't going to understand. What's this Frankel? Who's this Frankel guy? What's Goddard got to do with this? And who is Dick Hall? You know, we need to kind of lay the groundwork for that. As they would say in court, you, we've, you, you haven't laid the proper framework, framework or foundation <clears throat> for, that, for that discussion. So I'm thinking that when we come back in a few minutes here, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the who Goddard is, or what Goddard was, who Frankel is, uh, who Dick Hall is, and how they all come together in this case, and um, 
as I say, the book, which is called Encounter in the Desert, will be out if it's not out. I think you can I think you can get it through a Kindle already on Amazon, and I think you can also get the hard copy on Kindle. The official release date, I believe, is October 23rd. But you can take a look at that. Other questions you might have about the Socorro case will be answered at that point, and we'll have a, a more discussion about that here in a minute. Also take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which will have some stuff about last week's program that I think you'll find interesting and things that we'll be doing in the future. So we're going to take a few minutes off here, and we will be back right after this, so stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Mnemology science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Mnemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today, Know the Name, Know the Person, or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad, Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to Be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen.
Ancient prophecies, legends, and current events indicate we're entering a high-frequency era supporting enlightenment. During expansive times, old rules fail, necessitating access to the ever-shifting currents of life for guidance. There's an ancient form of shamanism through which we can obtain the information we need. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, founder and director of Path Home Shamanic Art School, with a great new provision for those interested in spiritual evolution and personal empowerment. Galactic Shamanism, Art of the Ancients, Key to Tomorrow, is an upcoming series of leading-edge online affordable classes designed to guide and support you and your family during these times of transition. Embrace the magic. Empower your life. Study Galactic Shamanism at findyourpathhome.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. After leaping great hurdles, after all kinds of problems, I'm making all of this up. Uh, we are back with Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. Their website happens to be uh, www.mufonva.com. So if you have a chance, take a look at that. When we went away, we were talking about Ray Stanford collecting a rock sample or samples from the landing site in Socorro. And we mentioned the Goddard... Uh, NASA's Goddard Lab in the Washington, D.C. area. We mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Frankel. Nobody knows who these people are. Ben or Tony, one of you, can you give us a little bit of a background on how we ended up at the Goddard uh, Laboratories? Yeah, the, the beauty of still working with Ray Stanford is we get to know the minutia of all the things that went on when he investigated this. But Basically, Dick Hall was the head of NICAP who had dispatched Ray to the site in um, 1964. And um, Ray and um, Heineck and Zamora were standing at the standing site when um, Zamora pointed out a rock that looked like it had been broken by one of the struts, four struts of the landing gear of the craft. So to make a short synopsis of it, um, nobody really paid much attention except Ray. Um, uh, everybody went back to uh, a big press conference. Ray came back, grabbed the rock, put it in a bag, took it home um, into the northern Virginia area and um, ended up uh, taking it to Goddard. Um, Before that, remember the metal was lost when he handed it to Dick. Yeah, a piece of metal fell out. But basically, the rock had scraped. Um, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's go back here a minute. So Ray Stanford's got the rock. He's put it in newspapers in his car in case some debris falls off and he won't lose it. He takes it home to Phoenix. He's living in Phoenix at the time. His next door neighbor is a doctor, I believe, a physician, and he goes to show it to the doctor. He's outside with the rock and a piece of the metal, the, the big piece, the big chunk of the metal falls off into the grass. And they spend an hour or right. two or three looking for this thing in the grass and they can't find it. When they examine the rock, there's still little tiny slivers 
of what looked like metal on the rock. So this is the rock that we transport now to the Washington, D.C. area, the, 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 the rock that uh, Dick Hall is interested in, the rock that um, he and Ray are going to take to the Goddard Laboratory so that their uh, laboratories can examine the metal and see if they can learn anything <laughs> about it. So now we're in uh, Washington, D.C., and I understand there was some discussion about whether or not they really wanted to go to Goddard. Uh, Ray wasn't cons really <clears throat> that fired up about going to Goddard. Ray's very careful about who he trusts. Even to this day, he's very, very skeptical, skeptical about anybody, and he, he has his own way of, of vetting people. And so, yeah, he was really, um, you know, little, he, was, he was concerned he was going to lose the rock or lose the metal. Dick Hall convinced him that he could trust Frankel and that he could trust Goddard, so he did. Frankel, Frankel is a, a, a physicist or a chemist? or Yeah, he was the, he was the, the, head, the head physicist um, in that department. And he was going to conduct the experiment himself, do the analysis of the metal. Um, While they were there, uh, right, right. lunch. And he said, come back, you know, in, in, a, in a few days, or yeah, I'll give you a call. He never got that call. Ray tried so hard to get back in touch with somebody. And by the time he did, Frankel was no longer in the picture. As a matter of fact, he was not allowed to even communicate with him. Nobody knows what happened to him. Well, he, he initially had told Ray that if you find something extraordinary, he'll tell him, and he did tell him that the rock had some Yeah, he, he, on problem. the phone, he, he got a chance to right. say that what I have for you is very interesting. Then he sent him a letter stating, you know, what he had found, but it wasn't the official report, you know, just yet. And the official report came out as something silica. ordinary. Silica. Yeah, like a silica. And the... Um, it, well, the, th the thing is, we, we have to point out that the NICAP investigator, which Dick Hall was involved with, and it, NICAP was the organization that Ray was working with at the time, in their uh, their UFO investigator, they said, they, they published the results as it came to them, which suggest it was fairly mundane metal. It wasn't any big deal. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have Ray saying that Dr. Frankel had told him one thing on the telephone, but when the official report came in, it said something different. Mm -hmm. Well, the report said silica, and as Ray has pointed out, you no scientist in the world is going to confuse silica with a zinc iron alloy. With a zinc iron alloy, silica is not a metal. It's you know, it's it's sand basically. It's glass. So the whole point is they were supposed to only use half the samples when they got the rock back. It was scraped clean, and there were little arrows pointing to where the flux of metal were taken out because the landing gear had scraped along this thing and rolled up the piece that fell off was a rolled up piece of metal. But, um, you know, initially he had communicated that he had something very unusual, didn't conform to the charts of U.S. or Russia or any country he could find in the way it was combined. And then that's when the clamp, you know, the, uh, he was clamped down on, he couldn't get a call to him. He got the rock back scraped clean. And then, you know, we found out through a third party later that he was sent to the woodshed for investigating uh, UFO metal and, and that he was basically told, you know, as people would say, if they investigated the metal, it had unusual properties, they would classify it, and you couldn't talk about it anyway. And that's probably what happened. Now, the good thing about Ray still having the rock and all the other rock samples, because I think it was like four or five, is that with today's technology, you don't need as much of a sample. You, know, you can get down to the micron level and still get a decent analysis as to so what something hope. is. So, <laughs> right. So, you know, and not only that, but there's other anomalies on that rock that Ray wants to have tested and, and some of the other rocks as well. And uh, we're hoping that at some point, you know, we can get to the to to a lab that 
he can trust that will do the analysis with you know, a very small microscopic sample. Well, you had said before that uh, Dr. Frankel had told them, uh, told, told him uh, there was some anomaly in the metal uh, verbally over the telephone and then sent him a letter that kind of confirmed that. Is that was that right. an ac accurate? Right. Mm -hmm. Does Ray have a copy of the letter? It's actually in our presentation that we did in Florida. Okay. And, and the letter is signed by Dr. Frankel? I believe it is, right? Um, I'd have to look at it again. I can't, I can't quite remember. I remember just time. grabbing the, the sample of text that we put in there, but I'm pretty sure it is. And not only that, but Heineck also uh, had an opinion about it and told Ray that he believes that the information he got from Frankel the first time about the zinc iron alloy is correct and to uh, ignore you know, the whole report about the silica. So we have, again, controversy around a UFO landing. Um, we have a kind of a dichotomy of, of opinion where can we believe um, the Air Force analysis because their business was to explain UFO sightings. I mean, it's right in the regulation, explain the UFO sightings, that sort of thing. And uh, we have this um, controversy about who said what at the laboratory. And, and you know, I, that's what's so frustrating about the UFO phenomenon. It seems that every time we have something that might be really, really great in the way of evidence, somehow it gets compromised. Yeah, you know, the one thing about this case that I find um, as a tell is unlike Roswell and a lot of other cases where they eventually come out and say, oh, we finally figured out what it was. I would have suspected that through all the years they would have finally come out and go, oh, yeah, that was a prototype of the lunar lander that got off base. We finally figured it out. Nothing to it. But they never did that because at the time they investigated pretty deeply and realized it was none of those things. But they had many opportunities to come out and lie about the case or say it was something, a black project, and they never did that, which kind of shows how baffled they were, were in Holder's last interview you know, he also said, look, I believe Lonnie saw what he saw, and I have no idea what he saw, but we couldn't figure it out. Well, Holder, of course, being the uprange commander that we talked about a, a little while ago, who was um, a, a, an Army officer at the time. Uh, what's also interesting is Hector Quintanilla, who was the chief of Project Blue Book at this time, in his own memoirs, in his own book, wrote about how he had uh, searched everywhere for any sort of a black project that would explain this and he had gone to Alamogordo which is co-located with White Sands with a letter saying he had a top secret clearance and he was cleared to hear anything that was said about any of this stuff and he said he spent days um, at Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo and at White Sands and, and couldn't find anything. He was very disappointed that he could not explain the case. He said that he thought the answer was in Lonnie Zamora's head Meaning that it, well, that it might have been some kind of uh, uh, hallucination. There might have been something that he had observed that would have explained this, but Zamora never uh, provided any explanation other than what he had told everybody from the very beginning. And Quintanilla was unable to explain it, so the case is labeled unidentified. And he said, in his memoirs, he knew that the UFO hobbyist, which would include all of us, I suppose, uh, would have a field day with this, but it was unidentified. And here's a landing with. Uh, uh, observation of alien creatures with landing traces left behind and all of that good stuff and he couldn't find any way to explain it and I thought that was very interesting as well yeah he expected to find it in a hangar at White Sands and was very disappointed that he, he couldn't find anything even remotely close to right, it right. Even, even Holder was surprised that his report to the 
Pentagon over the phone. They had to read his report. You know, he couldn't understand why they were so interested in this unless it was something. It was really yeah, interesting. They, they called him back, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was wondering why the Joint Chief of Staff uh, calling me back and talking about this case again. So there was a scramble to get an explanation out to the public. I just don't think they could ever come up with one because you could have debunked at the time any uh, black project because of the crudeness of, of most of the VTR, vertical flying vehicles that were around at that time. They didn't have a big range either. They couldn't be 30 miles off co course. They could have drifted off range, which would have been a horrible thing to happen in, in New Mexico. I mean, the, the White Sands missile range is huge, absolutely huge to, to prevent that. And they had trouble in 1947 when a missile went awry and impacted near Juarez, Mexico. So stuff got away from them off the range. But we know about that stuff. And right. there's no black project, nothing that would have been classified in 1964 that we don't know about now that would explain it. And nothing, nothing like that has ever come up. Uh, no egg-shaped craft that I can think of, and is this is today that would mimic the characteristics of this craft. And you know, Kevin, um, after reading, you know, Ray's book, and I really like your chapters five and six on your book um, about all the other different craft uh, descriptions, not only in the United States, which you know, you've aggregated nicely here, but also all over the world, because there was, you know, Italy, uh, German, France. Uh, Germany and France that had the same types of uh, descriptions, landings, people reporting such figures and, you know, things like this, very similar egg-shaped craft. You know, that kind of technology wouldn't be too difficult for some kind of uh, entity with that kind of technology to cross the globe, you know, and, uh, and provide other people with the same kind of... And that's interesting because science. if you look at this, this whole timeline from, you know, Google Maps perspective in space, it does look like this thing took a big swath of, of the, you know, the world and kind of had incidents in kind of a straight line from one country to the next of an A-shaped craft. Well, I'm, always, I'm always a little bit worried about assuming that something was seen in New Mexico, uh, a similar device is seen somewhere else, and it's the same device. You know, yeah. I'm a little bit it's worried just, about that. And, this, and this, this case was national news, at least. Um, within hours, almost hours, of Lonnie Zamora spotting the thing. Yeah, it's, it's, I think there's a couple, I think all the ones that were cited on military bases um, are probably the most solid, but, you know, ever since and before and after and all my years of investigating UFOs, I just don't get that many egg-shaped craft. Um, you know, get a lot of spears, a lot of cigars, but that's just not a common craft, and it was unique that it seemed to have been here, at least in a lot of places at that time, or you'd have to extrapolate that a similar civilization may have been building the same shape of different sizes, because one was described as 100 yards across, and the one Lonnie saw was probably 17 to 19 feet. But it let, me, like let, me, let me interrupt you here, because I'm going to have to take a break. Sure. And, and Tony, when you're mentioning the, talking about the book, please give the title. Ah, just a little humor there. to break. The Counters in the Desert. Thank you, thank you. Um, and as I say, we'll have more information at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Take a look at their website at mufonva.com. We will be back in just a few minutes and finish our exploration of the Lonnie Zamora case, so stick around. The Earth is under ever-increasing pressure from untenable lifestyles and growing populations, yet viable answers seem in short supply. What if I told you there's an ancient form that can empower you to take charge of your life? 
What if your entire family could be enfolded and supported by life itself, finding safe passage through challenging times? I'm Gwilda Wiecka, founder and director of Path Home Shamanic Art School with Great News, an upcoming series of leading-edge online affordable classes based in an ancient form of shamanism easily learned and used by your entire family. Galactic Shamanism, Art of the Ancients, Key to Tomorrow are a series of online adult and children's lessons instructing your entire family on natural law, how to cooperate with and be supported by the powers of the universe. Visit findyourpathhome.com to find these unique and powerful classes. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Are you curious? Do you want to learn more about how the world works and have fun at the same time? Study coincidences with me, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, on my Connecting with Coincidence radio show here on the XZBN network. Listen to Jungians theorize, statisticians randomize, true believers evangelize while I categorize. I dance to the rhythm of coincidences. People who experience me see more of them. Maybe something on the show matches a thought in your mind. Let us know. Expand your mind to the weirdness happening around you. Synchronicity spoken here, there, and everywhere. For more information, put Connecting with Coincidence in your search engine and find my website, my social media sites, and my blog. truth? Historically, we viewed things as either being true or false. Now as we enter a more expansive era, we find the question is not, is it true, but rather, how true is it? I'm Gwilda Wiecka, host of the Science of Magic Radio, a syndicated, internationally broadcast radio program dedicated to uncovering this ever-expanding truth. Join me daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, as I interview today's leading experts from the fields of science and magic to uncover the hidden truth between the lines drawn in the sand. What we unearth in our discussions is not only amazing, but totally unprecedented. You won't want to miss a single episode. In service to our listeners, 
Past episodes can always be found on our website with our compliments at thescienceofmagic.net. Joined by Ben Moss and Tony Angiola of MUFON VA, and their website is uh, www.mufonva.com. And if you have an ap- opportunity, take a look at that. The book we're discussing is mine, which I f- am delighted at, called Encounters in the Desert. It's about the Lonnie's of Mora sighting, but it's a little bit more than that because um, the Zamora sighting didn't happen in a vacuum. There was other stuff going on, and I think it's important to look at the whole picture of what was going on in New Mexico at the time uh, and the rest of the world. And as I said, I remember as a teenager growing up in Aurora, Colorado, I say that to prove that I actually know these things. Uh, I remember Walter Cronkite talking about this case on the uh, his evening news broadcast in 1964, and I remember a neighbor actually asking me if I'd heard about it. So this was big news around the country at the time. This is one of the premier UFO sightings, and it's one that the Air Force uh, failed to identify, they left it as unidentified, as one of the very few, and I think there's only three in the Project Blue Book files that they have uh, a report of alien creatures being seen in association with the ob- the objects that is labeled as unidentified. So in that respect, it is unique. So uh, when we went away, we were talking about a little bit of this idea of uh, the egg-shaped craft being seen in other parts of the world, and that might lend some credibility to the Zamora case. And I think, Tony, you were saying that there were only a few in you in your investigation you've only run across egg-shaped craft a few times yeah it seemed like it maybe was a flap during that time um of course i could be wrong i mean there could be other um sightings that i may not be aware of of more uh present day that report an egg-shaped craft i just i better i haven't really seen that it seemed like it was more around the the 50s and 60s and, and late six, uh, maybe early 70s, but... Yeah, I, you know, it's one of my theories that if there's more than one, you know, let's say there are ETs coming here and it's more than one civilization, it seems like some of the flaps have certain shapes and specific characteristics to them, and maybe that's an indication of different uh, manufacturers of these devices, but um, the, the egg-shaped craft incidents that I saw, there were nine in this time frame on a line through New Mexico um, and uh, across the country and then across the country and other countries in the same time frame you know it's kind of like where we had um, Riddlesome happen and then there was something associated with that I'm not saying it's the same craft but since there are very few egg-shaped craft reports it seems a little bit too much of a coincidence and also you know we get asked a lot how come we don't see the UFOs of old anymore? And I say to them, well, how often do you see a 19, you know, 30s automobile? You know, it, it's like evolution. It's only, it's only natural that what we used to see in the skies has, have evolved to these really exotic-looking, morphing type of plasma craft, if you will. We're not driving those heavy old steel, you know, well, we're not that advanced from where we were before. But if you, if you get my drift, it's like we're, we're, we're driving much better technology today than we were Well, let me interrupt here because there's one thing we need to touch on and we don't have a lot of time left, and that's the idea this was a hoax. And that 
idea was floated almost immediately as well, that it was some kind of a student hoax. Originally, I think it was high school students trying to get even with Lonnie Zamora because he kept picking them up for speeding. Uh, I guess they never figured out if we stop speeding, he'll leave us alone. Yeah, yeah there's absolutely no evidence to to, uh, to those. Um... Yeah, the, the Paulding letter, the letter that started it all was speculation. And, you know, when you're on the site and you see the site, there's absolutely no way that anybody could have pulled off a hoax that occurred as this occurred. And first of all, not be seen, not leave footprints, not leave gasoline kerosene traces. Um, there was absolutely nobody else out there at the time. There was no evidence of a hoax. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way to tie up all the other witnesses in the hoax by launching a balloon. Uh, most importantly, this balloon, alleged balloon, <laughs> went against a 30 to 40 mile an hour gust. Yeah, I mean, the evidence tells you that a heavy object came in, landed, and was seen by multiple people, heard by multiple people. The hoax came from that letter that speculated that, um, that I guess it was Sterling Colgate, that a couple of students had put this together. But it, it's impossible to do. I mean, And those imprints required tons of weight. And, and Captain Holder said, you know, that he just didn't see any way as a hoax. And when they asked... Well, the White House asked, um, I think it was Quintanilla, if we could say this was a hallucination. He goes, hallucinations and hoaxes don't put four holes in the ground and, and freak out a police officer. So, Well, we, I should, just, we, we should point out, I think, the, the important thing is the, the landing gear imprints were not excavations. They were pressed into the ground, so something very heavy had landed there, and that is an observation that came from all the people who were there and the other analysis that had been done by... Uh, the military. So we've got something that was very heavy that landed there. The other thing I should, the other thing I should point out, and I, I explore in the book Encounters in the Desert, that uh, the hoax explanation quite a bit, and it began almost immediately. And Heineck thought it might be a hoax, and talked to the president of the um, uh, School of Mines there about it, the possibility of that, uh, because he knew him very well. And the guy said, "No, it's not our students. It's uh, Colgate, who later became president, suggested to." Um, Linus Pauling, as a matter of fact, that it was a student hoax that had done it. But there's no real evidence that that took place. And every investigation is trying to pin it as a hoax seems to have gone nowhere. And I, I've always been in the opinion of this case that, that there's two explanations. It's either an alien spacecraft or it's a hoax of some kind. There doesn't seem to be any uh, middle ground there uh, for yeah, misidentification or a, a black project or anything like that. Yeah, when we were in Socorro, you know, talking to the editor at the El Defense Force Chieftain, and he brought up the two guys that said they hoaxed us. I said, oh, great, let's go talk to them. Where are they? And, like, one's in the hospital, he's gravely ill, the other one is gone, and neither one would talk to you anyway. And th that just told me right away. And we kind of got the feel. We asked him, what do, you, what do you think about their story? And he goes, well, nobody believes it. They just think they, you know, wanted to grab the limelight. So all the townspeople didn't buy it. He didn't buy it, and they wouldn't talk to us. And what's also really interesting, going back to those imprints, Kevin, um, and you also mentioned it in your book, Encounters in the Desert. Thank uh, you, thank there, you. Uh, <laughs> there was another site that also mentioned imprints that also had kind of a wedge-shaped, uh, you know, angled press, uh, which is very similar to what Lonnie described. And we analyzed that also with Ray Stanford. And these landing uh, feet, if you will, as they come in, if you can imagine that they kind of come to like a, a concave point, they would be designed to break anything in its way in order to get a good footholding into the ground. And uh, as Ray described in, in, um, in his book and also in the video that we showed in our presentation, as this thing lifted off, 
the motions that the foot would make as it's coming out of a hole is very indicative of the evidence that's been left behind. It would kind of wiggle, kind of like out and forward as it's coming back up. And, uh, and if you look at those imprints in that, in that respect, you see that that's the, the Occam's razor, if you will. That's the most likely explanation. And that happened with the ladder, too. Uh, you know, the, if there were two beams that came down, it looked like there were two, two circular indentations for a ladder, and then they, the indentations moved as the weight of the two bodies came down the ladder, and then you had the footprints a little bit of ways away, and then apparently when Lonnie showed up, they got back in and slammed the door and, and, and got away. So, I mean, there's just a hoaxer would have to have done so much to cover all the bases that it would have taken a Spielberg film crew and special effects to pull this thing off. But if it had been a hoax, there would have been people, you would have seen the people because, and, and there's pictures in the books that give you an idea of how wide open the spaces are there, that if somebody was trying to hoax Lonnie Zamora, A, they picked a really bad spot to do it because they had to drag him off his pursuit of a car, a speeder, one of the one of the speeders we were talking about, had to drag him off the pursuit of the car for him to go in that direction and get to the point where he could actually see this. And it doesn't seem that it was, there would be mo motivation for him to, uh, leave the chase for something else. So it, it just doesn't make make a lot there's, of sense. There's no way they could have they could have drawn him to the spot because we went with a guy who knew where it was, and it took us 40 minutes to find the spot. There's no way that they could calculate they could draw Lonnie to that exact place because it is really hard to find. And once you're there, there's nothing around there. You can see in every direction, and you know there's a high wind and. And you got to watch out for rattlesnakes and cactus. Also, don't forget, Lonnie was on random patrol. There's no way that these hoaxers would know where, where Lonnie would be at any point in time in order to pull this off with the kind of timing required. Well, I think we've kind of exhausted the discussion here, and I say that only because <laughs> I'm running out of time. Uh, we've mentioned my book. I, I'm delighted a number of times encounter in the desert. As I say, I've uh, the guests have been Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. Their website is MUFON VA. Uh, dot com uh, so take a look at that uh, you guys have any quick last words here we're speaking at uh, uh, we're speaking at mysteries of space and sky in gambrels maryland in two weeks and then in three weeks in MUFON pa um, another socorro presentation and we're still investigating the case as am i by the way but i think we've uh we've, we've got we've covered all the bases here hey guys thanks an awful lot for joining me here on a different perspective i thought maybe i should mention the program once in a while as yeah well. i appreciate it thanks Thank for having us on we'll all get together and work on the documentary there you go and um There'll be more information up on my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if uh, um, we haven't covered it there, you can ask questions in the, in the comment section as well. Next week, with luck, and I have promised you guys before, Brad Steiger on the program. I have got Brad lined up. We're going to do a giant Halloween spooktacular talking about uh, his investigations into the paranormal, how he got involved in... I suppose UFO research, and I'll even mention that I was remember in study hall in that very same Aurora, Colorado, reading his book *Strangers in the Sky* while I was still a teenager. So we'll uh, chat with him about that. But we'll be talking about what he's been doing lately and some of the things that he's discovered in his decades of research into the paranormal and UFOs. And as always, I like to say, if you would like to get a dispassionate 
review of the Roswell case, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century. I tried to distill all the hype from the uh, case so we can get a good idea what may have happened there, what may not have happened there, who was doing what. And as I say, in the coming weeks, we've got to have Robert Powell up, and he's got an announcement that will be of interest to you. So there are good reasons to join us again, and I will return in 167 hours. Thanks for listening.